morning. Welcome to Kesed. If you're new, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors. I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, I want to thank you for checking out church if you're, if you're giving it a shot. Uh, Kesed is trying to be a, a house of conversation, a place where people can come who, who have different experiences, different worldviews, and are, and are even on a, a different spiritual path than maybe a, some, and a place for people who just grew up in church, love what this entire thing is about, and, uh, and can't wait to be here every single service every night, every day of the week, that those people, those people exist, actually. You'd be really surprised. We have some, we have some uh, triple servicers here who go to, like, everything, serve at one, go to two, uh, and, and we love that, and we're excited about that, but we also recognize a lot of folks that have church hurt, and so uh, this place is a place that's willing to live in that tension, and, uh, and we're just, we're, we're excited you're here. A uh, quick reminder before I jump in, uh, next week is Mother's Day, and I just want to encourage you to uh, maybe invite a friend. Uh, or, or, or a mom, if, uh, if you got one around, or, uh, or maybe a friend's mom. You never know. <laughs> you know, just, just invite some people that are coming because it's going to be a very special weekend, uh, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. We've been working on it for quite a while, and uh, I'm not going to give too much away, but uh, I, just, I just think you should be here to check it out. Uh, we are uh, going to continue on in our shame series, which has just been so much fun to preach. I can't tell you how... How excited I've, I've been to be able to do this. And, uh, and, and we are going to follow through with uh, part two from last week. Uh, I'm going to do a quick recap because I know there's a lot of visiting people or maybe folks who are just uh, coming in online and you're kind of wondering what's going on. Uh, we found ourselves halfway through a story last week that uh, just, just didn't wrap up. And I think it's important to recognize that sometimes that's how our shame stories are. We get to a place that feels like it's a good time to take a breath or or talk to a friend, or, or have some prayer, or read a book, it, but it doesn't really feel like it's wrapped up. And that, that is a little bit what I think happened last week. I don't know that we're just going to wrap up everything. We still have a few weeks left in the series uh, for you, but I think for some of you, today is, is the beginning of your, uh, your kind of incline out the other side. And I, I just want to encourage you to, uh, to, to grab hold of that if you see it start to pass by. If you see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, if something hits you today, and the Holy Spirit's like, is like, that's our exit. Uh, take it. Go get, get on that path towards what's next for you. It's going to be different for everybody. But uh, I just, it was just important for me to, uh, to make sure and recognize that, that uh, for some of you, today is, is when you're going to be able to finally say enough. Enough of me carrying this. Enough of me thinking I can't get out of this. Uh, enough of the cycle. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a, a special day. So I'm going to pray because uh, part two is just more of the same for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not looking forward to it. I'm just being honest. Thursday went pretty well, but nobody records that stuff, so I feel a lot better about it. Um, <laughs> this, one's, this one's on record, folks. So let's just go before the Lord and ask him to make it all okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, for being willing to fight the fight being willing to, uh, to come and gather in a room and talk about hard stuff, real stuff, messy stuff. Every person in this space right now has faced shame at some point in their life, and every person in this space will face it again. And I ask God that there would just be a sense of togetherness as we move through what it is you've laid uh, on my heart to present. Thank you for the ways you've showed up in my own story. May I continue to remember that. And thank you for every person here who is processing this within their own context. We know that you move best within our stories when we recognize you are a part of them. So we lift this time to you. We, uh, we ask for you to make it all okay. <laughs> In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let me give you my recap. First, my shame definition. 
Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. This has been the running definition. This is a Brene Brown definition of shame that we've used for the entire series that kind of gives us good context for what it is we're actually talking about. I shared last week that it's time for us to step out into a place of other, other than where we've been, other than what we've tried, other than here, and other than comfortable, that we spent the first two weeks kind of summiting, kind of getting up above our shame and, or alongside our shame to get a good perspective, and uh, that, that last week we needed to now move out into the, uh, the actual wrestling of it, and uh, it, it, was, it was not a blast, as I said, but uh, I did receive some incredible emails from people who, who, who did that with me, and some other folks who felt like maybe this week that's what they were going to do. They were going to move out into facing and wrestling with their shame. Now, I'm going to continue speaking about some realities that I started last week around my own shame cycle and how it has affected me uh, and my story over the years. So today will be part two and more of that. Reminder about my two requests. First, they're the same. Try and remain with me. Don't check out when it gets too hard. Don't say to yourself, I feel bad for him. I can't watch this. Don't, don't pity me. I'm not, I'm not here for that. Uh, and remember that there is a great deal of power in remaining with people when they are kind of exposing some of their shame story to you. Next, don't just be an observer of me and my shame cycle. Allow it to be something that echoes through your own story and experiences. You may watch from your seat in the crowd, but watch with personal application in mind. Uh, allow this to, to stir you. Not just, uh, don't just be an observer of it stirring me. We talked last week about four tools that you might bring with you if you're going to go on this shame cycle breaking journey for yourself. Tool number one, own what you brought with you. And this is for every person in this room. If you aren't working your story and what you brought into the marriage, the situation, even the worldview you have right now, then I guarantee your story is working you without you knowing it. Tool number two, name your feelings. Feel your feelings and name them what they are. Stop being like, I'm all right, I'm good. Like, like, we have days like that, but we also have days where we're feeling something else, and it's really important that we stop and we name those. Tool number three, this was the highlight of the entire talk and the most practical tool, eat a snack and take a nap. This is a kind of speaking to the idea of emotionally regulating, being willing to care for your immediate needs uh, before you can really do much more when it comes to facing shame. Tool number four, carefully consider your choices, who you will be, who you, who will you hold true, and what will be able to speak truth about your life, and where in your life is the voice of shame drowning out the voice of the spirit. Lastly, when the voice of shame speaks into and over your life, because it certainly will, remember to respond instead to the voice of God and his always life-giving questions of where are you and who told you. Where are you now, today? Even in the midst of this series, it's so important to continue those first questions that God asked Adam and Eve when, they, when, when shame surrounded them and they were hiding because of mistakes they made. Where are you? Because I'm here to tell you that there is a kingdom that is advancing in this world well beneath, above, and beyond the kingdom we see every day. And it wants to tell you you're somewhere different in it than you are. You and I are children of God. That's why we can sit here and talk. It is through his presence through his power, through, through, through answering that question, we're here, we're with him, that we can then remember who told us that our identity is worthless or invaluable. And it is God who tells you that you are worth it, that you are valuable, 
that you are invaluable, that you are, that you are something powerful beyond what you realize right now. All that said, let's get into it. <sighs> Shall we? Uh, we've been talking about Elijah, who I introduced last week as the greatest of the spoken prophets. We left Elijah, this prophet, on his way to a place of his own choosing, 40 days that he traveled with God to a place that meant something to him. Here's the last verse from last week. 1 Kings 19, 7 and 8, I'll put it on the screen. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. The passage ends with Elijah arriving at his chosen destination. But I want to be very clear that it very much so lets you know that it took him 40 days to get here. And I think sometimes when the Bible gives us those little things, we're like, yeah, that was a long journey. Now he's at the mountain. Let's get into it. Please, please understand, Elijah carried whatever conversation he was about to have with God with him for 40 days and 40 nights. That's 40 campfires at night just sitting there by yourself thinking, I'm going to tell God exactly what I think about this. He had rehearsed it. He had thought about it. It took 40 days for him to reach this place in his mind that God was allowing him to go. God didn't say, arise and eat. Now that you don't want to commit suicide anymore, now that you're willing to face this thing called shame, he wasn't like, now go here. He got to choose that place. This is tool number five. When facing your shame, you are the one who determines the sacred ground of confrontation. And some of you, you need to get out and start that 40-day journey or that four-month journey or whatever that's going to be between you and God so that you can face it fully in his presence and fully in all your humanness. Too many times we think people don't want to face their shame because we tell them, this is how you do it. This is where you should be. This is what it should look like. That's not, I don't believe, how shame is best overcome. It is an individual battle, and I think the ground needs to be chosen individually, and it needs to be prepared for. So some of you need to start that journey. Today you want to maybe decide to face your shame, but don't just think, all right, I'm facing it right here in the church. Maybe that's what God wants. Maybe he's been preparing you for the last four months. But for some, this is only the beginning. And you may say, but I don't have the strength. I don't have the tools. I don't know how. That's exactly what God told Elijah. The journey's too great for you. But I'm going to be there. And we're going to talk every night around that campfire all the way till you get to this place that you're willing to face me. Confession. Uh, I, at the beginning of the year, chose to start my year with, a, with an extended fast that uh, started off not extended. It was just a typical, churchy, easy-to-do fast. And then day after day, God was like, I think we got more stuff. And I was like, day after day, I got a busy life, and I still got to go to work, and I'm not Elijah all by myself in the desert. Like, I got to be present. And God's like, I'm enough for you. And so day after day, I continued to follow him until I realized that I had some old things in my story I needed to face. This was how I chose to face much of my shame and some of even where this series came from. It wasn't easy, but I'm incredibly grateful I did. Let me just say this as well. I have heard too many people go on, uh, even short fast, and talk about the, the highs and the brilliance and never felt closer to God. And I think all that stuff is wonderful. But there's another group of us who, when they go on fast, the only thing they think about consistently is burritos. <laughs> I remember walking through 7-Eleven and I was like, those big bites have never looked better than they do right now in the name of the Lord. 
These things are not easy. They're not romantic. They are hard. And I think we need to be more honest about how hard sometimes it is to go on those journeys with God. Now, here's something interesting about this passage that's really important for the context we're going to talk about. Here's a picture of the mountain that Elijah's going to. Have you seen this thing? Um, compared to our, I don't know if you realize, but there's people down in this lower right-hand corner. This is more like the hill of God than a mountain of God, at least as we in the Northwest understand mountains. But this is the region and the area that Elijah is going to. Now, last week, we talked about how after Elijah called fire from heaven and killed the false prophets of God, he hoped and expected the people of God to repent and return to the Lord, but they didn't. We talked about how this sent him into a spiritual and emotional tailspin because this was the very first time that Elijah realized that God wasn't going to use him the way he always thought God would. We talked last week how the reason Elijah expected this was because he knew that centuries earlier, God had used another mighty man of God in the same way, Moses. Moses, who was known as the greatest of the written prophets, was called by God to lead the nation of Israel out of bondage to the Egyptian people hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. It's important to note as well, because we talked last week about Elijah really feeling like Moses was his counterpart. He was an example of who he was going to be. That after the mass freeing from Egypt, Moses then led the entire nation of Israel to his own mountain called Mount Sinai, where he received a little something called the Ten Commandments. I asked last week, why is Elijah heading to this mountain then? Why is he, what is he hoping to discover at Mount Horeb? I'm going to propose he's heading to this mountain to confront God with a very human question. And that is the question of why. Why did you let this happen to me? Why won't you do something about it? Why do I have to face this stuff? Why can't you make it all go away? This is tool number six. Unpack all your whys. This is the only tool in this series I've consistently used well over my life. I've asked God time and time again, every one of these whys I just read to you and many more, good, bad, and ugly, I have sat with the Lord campfire after campfire after campfire and complained my way. I'll be honest, I have complained my way to where I am now before God. People are like, what's the road to, to, to being able to be something like, like you in the kingdom? And I'm like, oh, just whine a lot. Just whine your way to Jesus, right? That's, that's going to be the name of my first book. Whining to the Lord and all the other, other things that he bothers me with. Confession, sometime last year, my whining got the best of me. I found myself struggling with what this job is really about. I, I've let a little bit of it spill out over this stage where I've talked about not wanting to be a brand. I've talked about uh, not wanting to... to to become something within Kesed that I can't maintain, that there's a pressure to perform at a certain level and in a certain way. And, and late last year, it just became too much. And so I just openly, with a small group of people, pondered quitting. I talked quite a bit about it for about six weeks or so privately, and then I ended up having an actual meeting with my pastoral staff about it. And I just want you to know it was an awkward dinner. I asked, why do I have to keep doing this? Why is this so hard? Why me? Why not someone else? I want to also share with you that the side note would have been if I quit for me to uh, sell exotic cars for Jesus. I would have still stayed in the game. I just would have been driving a Ferrari. 
I'd have been telling everybody about Jesus and the reason this, uh, this car is, is beautiful and should be yours. So I, I had a plan, but God wasn't having it. And the feedback I got was, uh, was good and it was healthy. But the reality is I was free to ask my wise. And so are you. Important, no one gets to choose your wise for you. Not your spouse, your friends, your therapist, or even your pastor. These are yours to unpack. And you have every right, like Elijah, like me, to put before God your whys, even if some of your whys are, are offensive in your mind to him. Now, here's what this also means. This also means, and I'll put this on the screen, that no one but you is to blame for the reasons or excuses behind why you haven't asked these questions before. That's on you, bro. No one else is, is, to, is to blame why you keep cycling through shame and relationships and story and habits and ways to numb and cope. No one's to blame but you for just sitting with God and saying, God, why did these things happen in my life? Why can't I get control of it? Either way, what I want to tell you is the same uh, thing I was able to tell myself, and that is that God's already waiting at the place you and I are running to. He's already there. He already knows where Elijah's going. He already knows what Elijah wants to ask him there. But God is present each campfire along the way, and he is also there for this beautiful confrontation they're about to have. Romans 8.39 says, Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So one more time, all these things can't keep us from Jesus' love, and that includes your whys. So some of you, the reason you have not a lot of intimacy with God is because you expect that verse to be applied to, you know, oppression or, or uh, difficulties or strife or different things, but you don't actually allow it to be applied to you. You can bring your whys over and over and over. They will not separate you from Jesus. I believe, back to the mountain, that Elijah very much knows this because of something that I know that Elijah knows about the mountain he's heading to. And that is, is that it's the exact same mountain Moses was on hundreds of years earlier. Mount Sinai is, na is the name of this mountain when God's people are living in obedience with God, choosing to follow Moses out of physical bondage to Egypt. Anytime you hear of God's mountain being called Mount Sinai, the people of God are kind of living in a general obedience to God and who he is. But Mount Horeb is the name of this mountain when God's people are living in disobedience with God not choosing to follow Elijah out of emotional bondage to a false god. Isn't that profound that, that, that we can head to these experiences with God, maybe call them different things? Some people meet God in the valleys. Some people meet God in the mountains. Some people meet God when finally all their dreams come true and they're scared to death that they're going to make it fall apart. And some people meet God when all their dreams die and all they have left is him. Either way, God's already there. In Elijah's case, it's clear and clear that he cannot shake the false image of who he thinks he's supposed to be or even who he thought God wanted him to be. So in his pain, he treks to the mountain as Moses, almost as if he hoped that the people would follow him there the way they had earlier for Moses. But every night as he builds a new fire, he looks back and there is no one behind him. And so every single step, he has to ask why, feeling more and more like a failure. Let's look at what happens next in the story. Verse 9 and verse 10. There, once reaching the mountain, he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replies, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. By the way, I think he rehearsed this line, campfire after campfire after campfire. I have been very jealous for the Lord, God of hosts. Arms on hips. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. Arms out wide. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the posture is, why? I did everything you asked me to do. I killed the bulls. I did the stone. Lord, I did water. Not once. Not twice. Three times in order to show your power and majesty. And you somehow still were not revered by these people. Why? What did I do wrong? Much more quietly, much more subtly, what did you do wrong? you got to ask all the questions if you're going to bring God your why. And some of the questions are, God, why aren't you better at your job? you got to ask him if you're going to spend time with him in all of who you are. It's important to note something about Elijah's well-rehearsed speech. And that's the name for God Elijah chooses to use. Lord, the God of hosts. This is the God of the armies of heaven is the other way to translate this. This is God's battle name. God has many names used in many different contexts, but Elijah chooses to use God's battle name. This is a proclamation about the role Elijah thought God should have played. I have been jealous for you, God of all armies. Why didn't you show up and overcome this oppression? And it makes sense why he would do this. Why he would use that word for when we look at how Elijah feels at this moment in his life, if you were to condense this entire thing down, a little bit of just pure, authentic vulnerability comes out when he says, and I, even I only am left. Elijah is afraid that he is utterly alone, that there's no one else in this world and in this place that understands where he is. This is tool number seven, name your fear. It's one thing to kind of name your feelings, to name I'm, I'm raging or I'm, I'm feeling apathetic or I'm feeling kind of like, like I, I feel like, you know, this or I feel like that. It's another thing to just be straight up about the thing you're trying to avoid. And Elijah is admitting in this place that he is not afraid of the external. He was perfectly fine to stand up to all the external voices and evil queens and false gods. It was the internal battle that he was losing. The voice of shame inside his head telling him, you're the only one who lives, believes, and is afraid this way. Brene Brown says the three things that shame needs to grow is silence, isolation, and judgment. And Elijah is living off these things. I believe that Elijah is experiencing the pressure that comes from believing the lie that everything rests only on him. And the shame that comes from realizing that he may not measure up to the person God has called him to be and the task God has set before him. And if I was to continue my, uh, my confession, I can say I understand this feeling well. Kesed is growing a lot. We just had the largest single Sunday two weeks ago, two and a half, three weeks ago, uh, in the history of the church outside of Christmas or Easter. And it makes me afraid. 
When I get like this, as a pastor, I'm supposed to turn back to Scripture. I'm supposed to read verses like Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But if I'm being honest, although it's a pretty verse, I just don't care. It's a cute bumper sticker and a really neat tattoo. Raise your hand if you got it. Real quick, no one's judging. Yes, we are. No. Naming my fear. Let me name it for you. That large church cannot be done in a healthy way. That A, it will cannibalize its pastors and staff along with their families through overwork and underrest because it's the kingdom work people. So it doesn't matter if I get a call at two in the morning or two in the afternoon, I gotta go sometimes because it's kingdom work and it's special and it's powerful and it's unending. Or B, that I'll get really, really good at that kingdom work and eventually that that large church will transform those pastors into superheroes who eventually think they are God's gift to the church and can do no wrong. And I'll just turn, let's see, I'll just call it gross. We've all been there. We've all seen it. I want to believe that it can be done differently, but that's not what my forefathers have shown me. And not just like personal forefathers, just, just church that when one person ends up in the top of a space that people hold them to, they eventually are torn from that space because they begin to sip just a little bit of the glory from God's cup. And God don't share that stuff. This is probably why I take so many naps and snag a lot. <laughs> For in this way, I'm great at self-regulating. But, but let's just be honest. We've all seen the end of this story. You've all seen the end of this movie, Our Church Grows and grows and grows, and I, I become more and more isolated and feel like I, I can be less and less of whatever it is the church brand has decided I am until eventually I cope in some way that disqualifies me. Next thing you know, the church blows up, it's all over the news, and you see me 20 years later, 70 pounds overweight in an Arby's trying to avoid eye contact. You're like, oh, is that Danny? Mm, that was sad. <laughs> Slow too close to home for some of us, I know. But this is my fear. This is what I'm dealing with. So what do I do? Well, I turn to scripture. I turn to what God does with people like Elijah who are willing to really truly go first. Look at how God responds to Elijah's honest posture. He gives him some direction. He changes his, kind of his place. And he responds to this and he goes, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So this is the face of the cave. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. I said earlier that God's already waiting for us at the place we are running to. This is tool number eight. When you get to this place and you're about to change your posture, you're about to take those first few steps, trust that God will move to meet you always. But know that he will often not meet you how you planned or how you hoped. Jeremiah 29, 11, very famous verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I think the most important part of this verse is not plans, it's not welfare, it's not future, it's not hope. It's the idea that God has plans for you and they're probably different than your own. 
that God will continue to work out his plans for me, not my plans for me. In this passage, we see God move for Elijah in all the ways he hoped he would since he was a boy. Fire, wind, and earth were the expected spiritual mediums God had previously used to show his people his presence. So when Elijah was like, man, when I call these people, fire from heaven, rumble, it's going to be amazing, they're going to repent, and then we're going to experience all these amazing things that God did before me. When he showed up in the wind and the column and the smoke and the voice, and oh, this is going to be incredible because I'm God's man. And so Elijah eventually is disappointed, does his traveling, gives his speech. God says, come to the front of the cave, and then passes by in all the ways Elijah hoped he would earlier. And yet Elijah feels nothing. Nothing. There's, there's no God in it, it says. It's crazy that God can be a part of stuff, and yet if your posture and presence is not right, you miss it all. So the fire goes and the earthquake goes, and Elijah's like, this is it. This is happening. God, God, nothing. And instead... He decides to move in an entirely new way. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Meaning earlier when God said, go stand on the mount, Elijah stood up but didn't quite stand all the way exposed. And behold, there came a voice to him. And it said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question, but different presence. And so Elijah, I think, just, just implores the same answer, but with a different posture. And instead, he says, perhaps with tear running down his face, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, they have forsaken your covenant They have thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And even I, even I only am left. And God, they seek to take away my life. It's a whisper that God uses to bring Elijah to his feet. It's a whisper that God uses to bring him to this place of listening. It's a whisper that God uses to begin to free him from his shame cycle that he was drowning in. And so yes, the church can grow. And yes, God can provide this new way for me to survive it, but it's not probably gonna look like I thought it would or like I hoped it would. And I bet it has nothing to do with Ferraris, which sucks. There's a way, I just don't know it, but I believe that God does. And there's a way that I think it's gonna go, but I don't really know if that matters to God too much. Because even if it went exactly like I wanted with wind and fire and stone and health and and all the stuff that I believe we're supposed to do inside this part of the world right now at this season and time, I'm like, God, there's a lot of opportunity here if you'll just shake a little ground. You'll just drop a little fire. And God's like, I'm aware, Danny, of the opportunities. And I'm aware of who I'm going to use. But why don't you just shh and listen? And I'm like, God, you know how good I am at that. Let me give you a quick sermon on how good I am at listening to you. And he's like, why don't you stand at the foot of the cave and watch what I do? This is tool number nine. Expect the unexpected to bless you. If I have learned anything, it would be this. I'll put it up that God will use who he wants how he wants to do what he wants in order to bring about the love you and I so desperately need. Uh, 
Recently, along with spiritual health, four or five years ago, I began to, to push heavily into emotional health. I, I did it with faith-based people, but I began to realize there's just a lot of untouched stuff that, that the Bible speaks to that we don't deal with because we, we don't allow things to kind of to be as holistic as they could be. So that meant my children, especially the, the younger children, uh, have been really impacted by uh, Aaron and, and I's desire to, to make this an important thing. And so my Elena... My Elena, who sings up here, she's 19, uh, has, has had much more emotional health than my older children, uh, talk and examples. And so she herself figured out, I didn't even ask her, she herself figured out with the way the insurance was that she could find a therapist. So she found her own. She's like, I found a therapist, Dad. I'm like, what? Why? You're like least messed up than any of us. Like, this is great, but why? And she's like, I just feel like I got some stuff. This was like, I don't know, a year ago. And I was like, Laney, I'm so proud of you. And Laney and I have a coffee date. Uh, every, a certain day of the week we go and, and have a discussion. And so th- this uh, last week or the week before, uh, it was one of our coffee dates. So she's like, Dad, I want to share with you some stuff. And I was like, I love this. Let's go. And she's like, it's going to be hard for you. And I was like, I don't, I- I've had a hard week already. So can we take it easy? And she was like, I'm mm, sorry, Dad. But sometimes it's good to sit in tension and conversation. And <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Lainey begins to share that she's been doing some story work of her own and her and her therapist have kind of come to this place that there's some significant things early in her life that, that, uh, that I wasn't around for. And I shared with you earlier about, about some of the, my church story and, and some decisions I made. And so she wanted to share with me some hurts in her story that I caused. And it was really, really difficult. And it was incredibly beautiful. And it marked me. And so I, I don't know where God wants to bless you from or how, how unexpected that will be, but I believe if you have a posture to come sit at the edge of the cave and look for all these, uh, these things and you're honest that you're looking, God will respect that. But then he may show up in the whisper of a daughter who says to you, hey, there's still some more work to do. Let's look what God says next to Elijah when he's authentic and he just pours it out. I and I am alone. He says to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. This seems like kind of a callous response, like there should have been more, but it it isn't. See, God directs Elijah with now a destination. Before God didn't give Elijah a destination, he let him kind of choose where he was going to go as he lived out this pattern of Moses. But now God says, Elijah, I've been with you the whole time and I have a place for you to go. And it is in the complete opposite direction of this mountain that you're on right now. God is proclaiming that Elijah will have his own story and not Moses's. That this cycle of comparing his value to someone or something else must end. God is clarifying for Elijah the same thing he's still clarifying with you and I. That the voice is driving Elijah and us into lives filled with unrealistic expectations is not the voice of the Lord. God is saying to you and I, you aren't going to live out anyone else's story but your own which means I can go to Arby's as much as I want and still follow the Lord. I'm not going to live out somebody else's story. I'm going to live out my story and my path and where I'm headed to. And here's the genius of shame is that it sits 
within its ability to distort that very truth, to contort and twist what's real, that you and I have a story and a path and a plan given by God that is different than those who came before us. This is a call to pick up tool number 10, engage in the true reality. I love this quote by Walter Brueggemann. He says, the prophetic tasks of the church, meaning the work that we're to do out in the future, are to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, grieve in a society that practices denial, and express hope in a society that lives in despair. This is the true reality of the human condition and what happens when it is separated from its creator. It, it decays and it spins and it tumbles, and we're supposed to be people who live out that reality differently, but we're never gonna do that unless we realize that God has a different path, and it may not be the mountain of the man before me. It may not be the generational cycle of the families before me. Matter of fact, I can tell you it's not either of those things. It is a new way and a new path and a new understanding. Now watch this next set of... Uh, instructions as God breaks Elijah's heart wide open with the reality of all that he has already prepared for such a time as this. This is what he says. And when you arrive at your destination, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. God is saying, you're not alone. I have a new leadership for you to anoint, a new king, a new overseer. He's saying, you're not the only one. I have someone else for you to invest in. He's saying, you're not doing it by yourself. You are there and available and ready. He's saying, Elijah, I have been preparing this entire thing for you. If you go on to read the verses, it actually says that God says there are 7,000 people who have not bent the knee to Baal. And they're waiting for you, bro. So get up, pack your stuff, and go. I am with you. Brene says empathy is communicating that incredibly healing message of you are not alone. And that's the last tool. Tool number 11, healing happens in togetherness. Together with God, together with each other. So here's my final confession. I need you. I joke a lot about parking spots because we don't have a lot. And I would love for them to be filled with people who call this their church home. But the truth of it is, I would just love it to be filled with people who are willing to not quit. And I, I want to know that I'm not alone. And I want to know that this place isn't too messy for you. Because I got as many problems as anybody else. I'm just, I'm just under the lights for this season. Lastly, just to show how God wraps up people's dreams. <laughs> This little thing in the New Testament called the transfiguration, which is the singular event in which Jesus appears radiant in glory upon the mountain. It's Matthew chapter 17. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Traditionally, the presence of Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration has been read as summarizing the law and the prophets, now being fulfilled in and by Jesus' life, the Messiah. Moses is obviously representing the law, for he is the greatest of the written prophets. But Elijah is the prophet who spoke, and he is the leader of the prophets as a whole. And so I just think it's so very profound that the boy makes it to be like Moses after all. That God had an entire plan of how he was going to use this crumbling man to do incredible things so that a foundation could be built for people like us to live our lives knowing that God is with us and for us. And that we need to ask those whys. We need to name those feelings. And we need to realize that he is going to bring about his presence and our stories just maybe different than we thought. And so here's my closing question. What are you doing here? Like, like, why are you here in the room right now? And as you look back over the arc of your life, what are you running from? What are you traveling toward? See, I just get to ask all the questions in different ways the Holy Spirit's going to ask you, I hope, right now and in the next few moments and the rest of this week. What are you doing here? And you should bring forth your well-articulated plan of the ways that God has both succeeded and failed in your life. The parents he gave you, the boss he gave you, the last church he gave you, the church he gave you now. You. And I should be authentically communicating where we are with God so that we can then be asked and answer that question around what are we doing here? If we can sit in that space, be curious about that answer, it will change how we raise our children. It will change how we love the people that work for us. It will change how we love the people we work for, the people who bag our groceries, the people whose groceries we bag. You take it any way you want to take it. If you can answer that question through your own questions, then I believe that God can flow and move in a way he already is doing. You'll just know about it. And when you and I know about it, you'll be able to stand and face the shame that keeps telling you the lie that you don't belong, that you don't matter, and that you're the only one. I think it's special. I think this, this space right now, right here, is special and sacred, and it doesn't belong to me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have the worship team come out, and we're going to do something different than we've done in the past, I'm going to ask you during the song for, for most of you, most of you to stay seated. And the reason most of you are going to stay seated is because some of you know that during this song, you're supposed to stand. You're supposed to stand right where you are in this, in this space that, that is a posture changing uh, element before God that, that you're willing to to see how he wants to operate in your life and answer that question, what are you doing here? It's not easy. It could be just one guy in the balcony. It could be just one woman over here on the floor. But I believe there's some people in here that today you get to stand and say enough. 
enough following my own path, enough following my own way, enough. I'm going to go sit at the mouth of that cave and I'm going to experience the presence of God even if I don't know what that looks or feels like. So anytime during the song, if you feel led to stand, you stand right where you are. And you let those words wash over you and you let the spirit of God speak to you. Some of you in the seats, that's where you're supposed to be. It's an honorable place as well. Receive from the Lord what he has for you in this moment. Let's pray. Lord, uh, spaces like this don't come around a lot. And so we're just going to rest in it. We're going to sit in it. We're going to see what you want to do with it. We're going to hold it close and hold it dear. We are thankful, God, for you and the way that you move inside of our stories. May you meet us as we reach for you now. In Jesus' name, amen. In the highlands
want to pray a prayer over you. It's the prayer of enough, and I'm in it with you. So, Lord, um, we're at the, the mouth of that cave. We want it to be different. We want to see you different. We want to hear you different. We want to move and our lives different. Meet us where we are, God. Hold us where we are. Lead us from where we are. Amen. Amen. Can I have the rest of you stand? I'm going to have Chandra just kind of sit on that chorus just a little bit longer. I feel like, uh, I feel like we should end this time with our, with our voices singing out, praising the God who leads us from here to what's next. Let's praise him. So I will praise you on the mountain. Sing it out, come on. And I will praise you in the mountains in my way. You're the summit where my feet are. So I will praise you in the valleys all the same. And no less God within the shadows. And no less faithful when the night leads me astray. You're the heaven where my heart is. In the highlands and the heartache all the same. God, we love you. We worship you. God, we trust you in this season. Father, we know, we know that you already know where we're gonna be. You already know the plans that you have for our life. So God, I just pray that in this moment, even though it feels really difficult to face the shame and the fear and the guilt and the things that have been cycling in our life, God, I pray that we would just lock our eyes with you we would focus on you and the truth, knowing that you love us, that we are children of yours. Father, that you can handle all of it. We surrender everything that we have over to you today, God. Thank you for this sacred space in this moment that we get to come and be real and raw before you. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen, you guys. Thank you so much for coming today. We love you and we honor you. Have an awesome day. We hope to see you guys next week for Mother's Day weekend, okay?